0: and he would like to say a little something about what KPFT means to him.
1: Go ahead, George. Hey everybody, this is Hayes Carl and you're listening to KPFT Houston.
2: KPFT Houston, 90.1 FM, Galveston 89.5 FM and Huntsville 89.7 FM. People of Earth is next.
1: I'm crying looking for you. I'm crying looking for you.
2: Welcome to People of Earth here on Pacifica Radio's KPFT, 90.1 FM, kpft.org. Thanks for being there. People of Earth expressing news, views, and music of indigenous America, Turtle Island, and sometimes beyond. I'm Jacqueline Batiste. Yes, it's February, and we honor Black History Month here on People of Earth. Here's the latest, Writer's Voice, with Adam Schatz about his important biography, The Rebel's Clinic, The Revolutionary Lives of Frantz Fignon, and later, Native author Vanessa Lilly about her novel, Blood Sisters, about the missing and murdered indigenous women and environmental racism.
3: Thanks for joining us this hour on this station and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Frantz Fanon lived a mere 36 years, yet his revolutionary legacy has been enduring. He was the intellectual activist of the post-colonial era, and his writings about race, revolution, and the psychology of power continue to shape radical movements across the world. As a psychiatrist, Fanon explored how colonialism deforms the psyche of not only the colonized, but also the colonizer. As a black man, he wrote powerfully about identity and the trauma of being the other in the view of the white gaze. And as a revolutionary, he held a nuanced understanding of anti-colonial violence as both a tool for liberation and a destructive force that can undermine democracy in post-colonial societies. We discuss all this and more with my guest Adam Schatz. His biography of Fanon, The Rebel's Clinic, explores Fanon's life, work, and enduring influence on post-colonial theory and beyond. It was named A Most Anticipated Book of 2024. Adam Schatz, welcome to Writer's Voice.
1: Thanks for having me, Francesca.
3: So tell us about Fanon's background and how it shaped him.
1: So Fanon was not Algerian. He was, in fact, Martinican. He was born in Fort de France, the capital of Martinique, in 1925, and uh, was educated there as a young man. And 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 then, after fighting with the Free French forces during the Second World War, he studied medicine and eventually psychiatry in Lyon. He had seen Algerians. He had come across Algerians during the Second World War, when he was briefly stationed there on the way to fight in France. And he certainly saw some horrible things in Algeria. He registered the intense poverty and the colonial division and so on. But it was not until 1953, late 1953, that he returned to Algeria as a doctor to serve as the director of a psychiatric hospital uh, in the city of Blida, just outside of um Algeria and then of course a year later the independence struggle broke out and Fanon was early to sympathize with the struggle and eventually to join it.
3: So he became a psychiatrist and it, it was really key to Fanon's identity and his thinking uh, his work as a psychiatrist what drew him to psychiatry? It's
1: a good question because you know Fanon um originally had not set out to become a psychiatrist. He'd had thoughts of Uh, becoming a writer. He wrote plays. Um, He considered studying dentistry. Um, We don't know exactly why he chose to study psychiatry in the end, but I think there's some indication that he saw psychiatry as a discipline that would uh, permit him to explore what in this book I'm calling uh, the dream life of racism. And in other words, the 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 unconscious uh, experiences of racism and discrimination, which he first observed when he was going out to um, emergency appointments in a neighborhood in Lyon that was heavily populated with North African laborers, um, all of them men, most of them Algerian, and uh, these men were complaining of something that French medicine had called the North African syndrome. And and what the the French uh, doctors meant was that these men were suffering from pains that had no lesion. And the argument of French psychiatry was that this was an imaginary illness and that uh, it was, if anything, almost an excuse not to work. And what Fanon argued instead was that the North African illness was a kind of you might say, a psychosomatic complex of very vague symptoms that emerged out of the experience of intense alienation and racism. So, you know, it's it's quite remarkable because even before Fanon set foot in Algeria as a doctor, he was already working with Algerians and arriving at some of his early um, intuitions about the relationship between mental health and racism.
3: And His first book, in fact, was very much about that, Black Skin, White Masks. It was supposed to be his thesis, but it was rejected in medical school. Talk a little bit about that, and then talk about Black Skin, White Masks. It was really about the lived experience of of racism and colonialism, as you say in this book, Adam Schatz.
1: Sure, and, and lived experience is a concept that's very important to Fanon, the, the experience vécu. And it's a term that he that he took from phenomenology. You know, Fanon was was going to lectures by the great phenomenologist and existential thinker Maurice Merleau-Ponty, who had a great impact on him. Uh Fanon did initially submit some version of Black Skin White Masks, which was originally called um, an essay on the alienation of the black man to his professor uh, Jean Deschamps. But Deschamps, his thesis director at the University of Lyon, was a very traditional psychiatrist. And in fact, um, the Lyon Department of Psychiatry was described by one of Fanon's colleagues as a psychiatric desert. It was very conventional. It it really saw neurosis as something that was just uh, a product of the brain. It It was a school of thought that ignored issues of society, politics, you know, the world around us. And Fanon was, was led in a very different direction by uh, the radical psychiatry of his day, which was emerging out of institutions like uh, the saint um asylum, where he eventually did his, his residency, and, and was profound, he was profoundly influenced by the psychiatrists of Saint-Albonque, who were themselves often Marxists or anarchists. Now, Black Skin and White Mass was an essay that drew upon his own clinical studies, principally of blacks and whites, Uh, although he also wrote about North Africans. And it also drew upon his personal experiences of racism um, in France. Uh, The focus of Black Skin, White Masks was on West Indians, Uh, West Indians like himself, who had been raised to think of themselves as white, except for their skin color. And um, Fanon's argument in Black Skin, White Masks was that uh, this was a kind of, colonial deceit. Black people were black people. They were French, too, but for the French to deny their racial condition, their experience of being black, was a kind of trick performed by colonialism. And uh, he wrote extensively in that book of the way that uh, black children, for example, were taught to identify with white characters, with whites on on the screen, with Tarzan against forces in the jungle, with um with whites against Native Americans, so you know what blacks and white masks was a very original synthesis of psychiatric research, cultural criticism, and a kind of veiled autobiographical reflection. The core of which uh, is to be found in the chapter called "The Lived Experience of the Black Man." which revolves around this traumatic experience that Fanon himself had when he was on a train in France, and a a little boy with his mother cried out to his mother, "Uh, look, maman, a negre, a negro. And Fanon did not think of himself as a negre. He had grown up thinking of Africans as the negre. He didn't think of himself really as black. And he was shocked by this encounter. He was shocked by the fact that this boy saw him, a Frenchman, as this object of fascination and terror. And uh, clearly that incident lay at the heart of his decision to write this book. He was only 27 when it was published.
3: Did he, in that book, originate the term white gaze?
1: Well, I I think that you could argue that he is the first to develop that idea. I mean, the idea of the gaze is something that he took from existential philosophy from writers like Sartre, who wrote a lot about the gaze, le regard. But Fanon uh, took this idea that what connects us to other people is a gaze, right? I look at you, you look at me. And he infused it with this socio-political content. And so for Fanon, The other of the black man or the black person, I mean, he often spoke of men, and we can talk about that, is not simply another person. It's the white person. It's the heir of the colonial master, of the slave master.
3: And he, in some ways, was always the other, but not just the other in terms of the white gaze. I mean, he also, in Algeria... Was the other in some way? He never learned Arabic. He had to work with interpreters, to work with patients. How did his status as other help and hinder him?
1: Fanon was often mistaken uh, for an has often been mistaken for an Algerian, and of course, that grew out of Fanon's intense identification with the Algerian struggle, and by. Uh, you know, by the late 1950s, he had begun to identify himself as an Algerian, even to imagine that people like himself might be Algerians in the future. Now, there's no question that uh, Fanon's appearance, to some extent, helped him in Algeria. He had gone to Algeria as basically a colonial administrator. And this was not uncommon for France to send West Indians to represent France in African and North African countries. So he didn't go there as someone who was close to the so-called indigene, the natives, on the contrary. But he very early developed a a sense of connection, especially to his North African uh, patients. And when the rebellion broke out, uh, within a few months, Fanon was offering his services to the FLN, to the Front de Libération Nationale. His appearance could be mistaken for that of of an Algerian Arab. And there was, you know, he recounted an anecdote to a French psychiatrist about being in his car smoking um, late in the day when an Algerian man uh, passed by him. This is at the beginning of the rebellion and said, you know, you really shouldn't be smoking. Now, smoking at that time had been banned by the rebellion as part of a campaign against French cigarettes that man thought he was Algerian. And as Fanon recounted it, that experience had an emotive force for him. He felt that he was also visually connected with Algerians. Now, at the same time, Fanon was a West Indian. He was a black man, and he would encounter racism within the Algerian movement. And among North Africans, once he was living in Tunisia and working as a a spokesman, for the GPRA, the exiled government of the Algerian Republic, the FLN's um, exiled government. He had numerous experiences of this. When he was uh, working at a hospital in Tunisia, he became the target of a campaign of vilification by a Tunisian uh, medical administrator who even accused him of being pro-Zionist simply because he had written about anti-Semitism in black Skin white masks and happened to be friends with a number of Jewish communists. So Fanon's position within the movement had its complexities, and some of those certainly had to do with the fact that he was not Algerian, and he was not a Muslim, and he was, you know, he was part of a struggle that was um, Arab-Islamic, Arab-Berber-Islamic, if you will.
2: You're listening to KPFT, 90.1 FM, kpft.org, and I'm Jacqueline here on People of Earth.
3: So now tell us about Frantz Fanon's concept of disalienation. I mean, this is a key part of this book, The Rebel's Clinic, The Revolutionary Lives of Frantz Fanon. You write that the struggle for human freedom and disalienation was a constant battle between the wound and the will. So explain this concept to us.
1: Sure, sure. Now, the the idea of um, these ideas about alienation and disalienation are not ideas that Fanon himself invented. They're ideas that that he took up um, as a psychiatrist working with radical psychiatrists such as Francois Tosquelles, who was a Catalan Marxist psychiatrist of a kind of Trotskyist anarchist bent who had organized the uh, psychiatric services of the Spanish Republic, and then had gone into exile. And uh, François Tosqueyes was one of the lead doctors at uh, the saint Alban Clinic, where Fanon was a resident. He and Tosquelles became quite close. And one could argue, in fact, that Fanon became the Tosquelles of the Blida Joinville Psychiatric Hospital in Algeria, applying ideas that he and Tosquelles had developed together Uh, at Sat alban One of those had to do with disalienation. And the idea essentially is that that the mentally ill, but also groups who have suffered from forms of confinement and social alienation, uh, black and marginalized people, the Arab colonized, that they are cut off from their identities. They're cut off from the sources of power that they could draw upon to act independently upon reality to become sovereign subjects, to govern themselves, and that psychiatry was a kind of radical tool for overcoming this alienation. Now, eventually, Fanon was to conclude that psychiatry alone, even the most radical kind of psychiatry, could not accomplish the task of disalienation. There needed to be a social and political revolution, a a, a sweeping decolonization. And this is why he resigned from his post and left Algeria. He was shortly afterward expelled anyway, so he's in fact lucky that he left when he did. But Fanon continued to work in psychiatry, so he clearly still thought that psychiatry was an indispensable weapon um, in this struggle for disalienation and freedom. He never abandoned it, and psychiatry infused all the work that he did as a political activist. Now, my point about the wound and the will is this. Fanon's writing, I think, is defined by this extraordinary tension between a kind of um, historical bleakness and a will to change that verges on utopian, this intense and inspiring optimism about our capacity to change our circumstances and to create a new world. So on the one hand, He acknowledges the tremendous damage, political, economic, psychological, that systems of domination and oppression have created. On the other hand, he still believes in what he calls this leap of invention. He still believes that collectively we can free ourselves from these systems of domination. We can achieve disalienation. We can free ourselves as individual subjects as we free ourselves from collective forms of domination. And so the tension in his in his writing is a tension between the wounds of history and the will to transform.
3: Mm, that's wonderful. Adam Schatz, Frantz Fanon, you know, in his book, the one that he's most well-known for, The Wretched of the Earth... Jean-Paul Sartre wrote the preface to it, highlighting the notion of the liberatory role of violence. This is part of the disalienation process. The violence of the oppressed is an affirmation of dignity. And he's been accused of being an apologist for terrorism, but the truth is much more nuanced than that. So talk about his understanding of violence and its limitations.
1: Yeah, it's an enormously uh, complicated question, uh, which I don't claim to have resolved. You know, there there are tensions at the heart of Fanon's work. They are not resolved, and they're part of what makes his work so interesting, so attractive, so seductive, so fertile, and also so easily misunderstood. Sartre's uh, a preface, unfortunately, contributed to, I think, a misunderstanding of uh, Fanon's book. I mean, he Sartre appeared to have read only the first chapter, um, on violence. And, you know, Sartre took a position on violence in that essay, which is a, a brilliant piece of rhetoric. He took a position that was, that verged on the ecstatic. He seemed to exalt violence in language that Fanon himself did not use. And I think it's worth noting that Fanon maintained an enigmatic silence about the introduction. He never said what he thought of it. He was obviously welcomed it because he knew that that Sartre's introduction would help to raise the profile of the book, but he never said what he thought of it. Fanon was clearly an advocate of armed struggle. He believed that armed struggle was necessary to, as you just said, to the affirmation of the dignity of the oppressed. He also believed that it was necessary as a response to the violence that colonialism was. Colonialism is a violent system. It's founded upon the original acts of dispossession, colonization, land confiscation, that conquest involves. However, there are subtleties and nuances in Fanon's writing on violence. Personally, he deplored violence. He didn't like it. It left him very uncomfortable. And there are letters that Fanon wrote during the Algerian War in which he writes with horror, about the apocalyptic mood in algeria violence is not something that he that he welcomed and that he celebrated he also while defending armed struggle on both psychological and political grounds he was also clear that a politics based purely on hatred and revenge could not sustain a national liberation movement. Um, he believed, for example, that if members of the colonizing community, and by this he meant Europeans in Algeria, he also meant uh, Algerian Jews who had received citizenship in 1870, who, who themselves had once been natives, but who had become French. He was clear that these people, if they embraced the the Algerian revolution, if they took the side of the rebels, they too would be considered Algerians. In other words, he was not arguing that every member of the colonizer community is inherently and eternally a colonizer. That person's status could change if the person embraced the anti-colonial struggle, and if there was a full decolonization and a change in the relationships between people. I mean, if, if colonialism died, there would no longer be a colonizer and a colonizer. There would simply be free men and women. And, you know, another ambiguity that has to be underlined is this. The last chapter of The Wretched of the Earth, one of the most powerful chapters in the book, and the chapter that is the second longest, just after On Violence, is about the psychological, the long-lasting psychological toll produced by violence. It's called uh, Colonial War and Mental Disorders. And Fanon in that chapter writes not only about the impact of colonial violence on the colonized, he also writes about the psychological impact that anti-colonial violence had on people who took up arms and who suffered great psychological pain because of the violence that they had inflicted during the war. He wasn't saying that what they had done was necessarily wrong. He wasn't passing judgment. And we have to remember, Fanon writes as a psychiatrist. He does not write as a moralist. He understood that the wounds of colonialism were not easily overcome, and that violence, even if in the initial stages of a rebellion, it was a kind of radical shock therapy, that violence alone would not produce revolution.
3: It's so interesting in your book, Adam Schatz, in the Rebels Clinic, what happens to revolutions? It seems like so many liberation struggles against colonialism have ended up installing, you know, corrupt dictators, basically, people who turned into corrupt dictators. And you address this in this book.
1: That was a concern of of Fanon's. I mean, let's recall that Fanon is uh, working in a liberation movement that he knows to have a number of, of flaws and defects. He joined the Algerian struggle. He had a, a mentor in um, a man named Aban Ramdan, who was a one of the charismatic leaders of the Algerian revolution inside of Algeria. But eventually, uh, Fanon Leaves um, Algeria. I mean, he would have been killed if he'd stayed there, and he starts working with Aban Ramdan in Tunisia. And at a certain point, not that long after Fanon arrives in Tunisia, Aban Ramdan is murdered by his own comrades because they're afraid that he's developing a cult of personality, because they're jealous of him. I mean, there there are plenty of reasons that we don't need to go into, but the point is, he saw that there were authoritarian and thuggish tendencies developing. Within this movement, and he was clearly troubled by them. And there are some indications that he was on a list of people to be liquidated if there was an internal rebellion on behalf, of, in the name of of the you know of Aban Ramdan. So Fanon in the Wretched of the Earth um, has a chapter about the pitfalls of national consciousness, also about the national bourgeoisie, in which he warns about the development of authoritarian tendencies within anti-colonial movements and warns warns essentially that these revolutions might be confiscated by avaricious elites who will install themselves in power and essentially treat other people as if they were colonial subjects uh, his criticisms are all the more remarkable in that the wretched of the earth was published in 1961 at the very dawn of independence so he saw the future coming and it's an extraordinary chapter to read today full of penetrating and even prophetic insights.
3: Also, as I read this book, The Rebels Clinic, the shadow of the conflict between Israeli settler colonialism and the Palestinian people just haunted every page for me. You know, one of the things he talked about was not only how colonialism distorts the psyche of the oppressed, but also how it damages the psyche of the oppressor. What do you think Fanon would have said about the struggle today in Israel and Palestine, and then we'll talk more about his legacy after that.
1: Sure. The the relationship between Fanon and Palestine is quite interesting. There's no mention in his work of the Palestinians, and the mentions of Israel are few and far between and mostly have to do with the fact that Israel received post-war reparations from uh, Germany, which he suggested might be a kind of model for post-colonial states seeking reparations from their former colonial masters. But Fanon was taken up after his death by uh, numerous uh, Palestinians. The leader, one of the early leaders of Fatah, who was later assassinated by Israel, uh, Salah Khalaf, uh, who was known as Abu Iyad, was a reader of The Wretched of the Earth, described Fanon as one of his favorite authors. Of course, Fanon had a A great impact on Palestinian thinkers like, um, above all, Edward Said, who was uh, one of the most perceptive writers on Fanon's work. And in more recent times, Fanon's studies of the colonial psyche have been taken up by Palestinian psychiatrists like Sama Jaber uh, in the West Bank, and also by uh, radical Israeli psychiatrists uh, like Rahama Martin, who's with uh, Physicians for Human Rights in Israel. I can't say what Fanon would have said about, about Palestine. He's been dead since 1961, but I think it's fair to say that Fanon, you know, would be sympathetic to the Palestinian struggle against occupation, apartheid. That, that to me, is a kind of a no-brainer. As for the question of the way in which colonialism disfigures the psyche of the colonizer, you know, this is a theme that you find in a lot of anti-colonial writers. You find it in the work, uh, for example, of um, Aimé Césaire, who was a mentor to Frantz Fanon. Aimé Césaire, a great Martinican poet and statesman, and in his own discourse on colonialism, which was published in the early 1950s, he said that uh, colonialism works to decivilize the colonizer and to uh, encourage the most uh, brutal instincts. In the colonizer, um, this is an idea that you also find in the work of the Tunisian writer Albert Memmi. I write about both of these people in the Rebels Clinic, but Fanon develops this idea with particular flair, and he writes about the, the exhibitionism of the of, of the colonizer, the reliance on these spectacular acts um, of violence. I mean, which you know we're of course seeing right now with the horrors, the destruction inflicted by the Israelis in Gaza. I also think that Fanon would not be surprised at all by the use of a kind of animalizing language by figures like Yoav Golan, the defense minister in Israel who has referred to the Palestinians as animals. Fanon wrote in The Wretched of the Earth that the language of the bestiary is never far from the, the colonizer when talking about the colonized so I do think that Fanon has has much to say about the dynamics of the the current situation.
3: Finally, what do you think is Fanon's legacy or most important lessons for us today. After all, today is a much more despairing time than the one that Fanon lived in. I mean, he, he had some reason to believe that there was hope on the horizon. And not to say that there isn't always hope, but it, it is a time when it seems that the forces of darkness are on the rise.
1: That's a very good question. I'll go back to that, to the point that I was making earlier about the wound and the will. Fanon was a a close reader of West Indian poetry. He particularly admired the writing of of Aimé Césaire. Aimé Césaire had a concept of negritude, of blackness, that stood in contrast to the negritude of the Senegalese poet and statesman, Leopold Senghor, whom he met as a student in Paris. Senghor had a very mystical idea of of negritude as um, kind of eternal African civilization. You know, he understood negritude in almost transhistorical mystical terms. For Césaire, blackness was uh, about the future. It was about self invention. It, it was explicitly anti-essentialist. And this is a theme that, that Fanon takes up um, in his writing, not just on blackness but on the Algerian Revolution. Fanon is a committed believer in our capacity to reinvent ourselves to create what he calls a new humanity. He said a new man, but he meant a new, a new humanity. So Fanon is, on the one hand, witheringly critical about these systems of, of domination, but at the same time, he's uh, very suspicious of essentialist formulas. He's very suspicious of attempts to to draw hard and fast lines between different groups of people. He believes in collective solidarity and the possibility of acting together. And so I think that, you know, Fanon also warns us against against the tendency to confuse, to put it broadly, ontology and history, the tendency to suggest that we are condemned by our identities. That wasn't Fanon's view. I mean, on the one hand, he very much believed that there was something specific about going through the world as a black person in a racist society. At the same time, he believed that through common struggle, people could forge something new in the world. And I think that, to me, is the essence of Fanon, this belief in invention and this insistence on human dignity.
3: Well, that's a great answer. And it is just a terrific book and a terrific read. The Rebels' Clinic, The Revolutionary Lives of Frantz Fanon, Adam Schatz, uh, it's been really a privilege to talk with you about this book.
1: Thank you so much, Francesca.
3: Adam Schatz is the U.S. editor of the London Review of Books and a contributor to the New York Times Magazine, the New York Review of Books, the New Yorker, and other publications. In addition to the Rebels Clinic, he's the author of Prophets Outcast A Century of Dissident Jewish Writing About Zionism and Israel, and Writers and Missionaries. Essays on the Radical Imagination. He's also the host of the podcast, Myself with Others.
2: Hey, you're listening to People of Earth here on KPFT, 90.1 FM, kpft.org. In solidarity, honoring Black History Month, that interview from Roger's Voice with Adam Schatz, on his book, The Rebel's Clinic, The Revolutionary Lives of Frantz Vignon. Now here's Native author Vanessa Lilly about her novel, Blood Sisters, here on KPFT, with Writer's Voice again.
3: I'm Francesca Riannon. There are twin crises afflicting Native American communities. The first is the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women. One study found that more than four in five Native American women have experienced violence in their lifetime. The other crisis is environmental racism. Indigenous communities are disproportionately exposed to environmental contaminants. One of the first examples of this can be found on Cherokee land in northeast Oklahoma, home to one of the worst Superfund sites in the country. Contamination by lead and zinc mining has spawned an epidemic of chronic diseases and poisoned the land and water. My guest, Vanessa Lilly, is an enrolled member of the Cherokee Nation and a best-selling author of suspense novels like Little Voices and For the Best. Her new thriller is Blood Sisters, named as one of the best mystery novels of 2023 by the Washington Post. Blood Sisters takes up the theme of environmental injustice and the missing indigenous women crisis, Based on real events near the Cherokee community where Vanessa Lilly grew up. Vanessa Lilly, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. This novel, uh, Blood Sisters, you have a wonderful character protagonist at the center of it. Her name is Sid. Before we get into the meat of this novel, tell us a little bit about her. She's looking for justice. Absolutely. Yeah, for me, Sid Walker, you know, I wanted
0: to create a character who really valued justice over everything else. And justice, I don't necessarily mean in terms of the law, but certainly her own sense of right and wrong. And for me, that kind of a passion really can propel a story. So as a storyteller, I thought, you know, a character who... Would truly put their own life on the line when it came to doing what they thought was right. And in Sid's case, kind of the danger is her sister has gone missing, so she certainly will do whatever it takes to find her sister. Um, so that was sort of a big, a big piece of of who I wanted her to be. And and I thought it would be something that um, I would want to follow creatively, hopefully through many
3: stories. And like Sid, you are an enrolled member of the Cherokee tribe. What are some of the other parallels between you and Sid?
0: Yes, there's a lot. So for me as a writer, I knew I wanted to create a character that had a lot of my similarities. I think in publishing right now, it's very important, I think, to write characters that are connected to your own experiences. So I felt like even being Indigenous is not a monolith. Like, writing an indigenous character. It's important for me to really write a Cherokee character because that's what I am. I'm from the Cherokee Nation. So I felt like it was really most appropriate that I make sure Sid was really in my experience because there just are so few indigenous authors out there. And it's important to like to support the community in the way of having my you know authentic voice there. So she's Cherokee, she's from northeastern Oklahoma, which is where I'm from. Um, She's Two-Spirit, which is something I also am. And for those who aren't familiar familiar with the term, which is very common, Two-Spirit is used in Native communities. It's actually a newer term for something that has been accepted by many tribes for, well, thousands of years, which is this idea of gender, not just being, oh, male, female. You're a girl, you like boys. You're a boy, you like girls. Um, Within Indigenous communities, there was a respect for an appreciation for all the differences that there could be. And sometimes it can have to do with sexuality and attraction, but other times it can be more just how you see yourself. So there's another term queer, So like indigenous plus queer. Me personally, just in kind of a typical colonial construct. I I love the word queer. I think it's a great word. But for me, I think two-spirit really helps kind of capture my own sense of identity, which is like, I don't want to necessarily accept these very traditional, colonial, even puritanical views of gender. That's, you know, not my tradition. And so I I love Two-Spirit because I think it pushes against that.
3: Yeah. And even, I mean, the word queer in some way comes from a notion that you're not the norm, whereas Mm Two-Spirit doesn't really make a judgment about what's normal and not. That's right. In a lot of ways, sort of just recognizes
0: that all of us have a masculine and feminine, if you will, within us. Um, and maybe one is stronger at times than other. But two-spirit means, you know, different things to different tribes and different people within those tribes, which I think that softer view of sexuality is is really powerful. I think so often we're just so caught up in labels and binaries and, you know, assuming exactly what a person is based on a brief interaction, you know. And I think what's kind of beautiful about Two-Spirit and a lot of the intention behind it is that you have to sort of listen and learn before you can make judgments.
3: And we are talking with Vanessa Lilly about her novel Blood Sisters, and this novel deals with twin crises in the lives of Indigenous Americans. One is the missing women's crisis, as you've already alluded to. The protagonist's sister has gone missing. And the other is the environmental racism crisis. You say what happens to the land happens to the women. And I think you could also reverse it. What happens to the women happens to the land. Could you say what you mean by that?
0: Sure. So if those are not my original words. They're. Words I love, and it was the opening epigraph in my novel. And it was um, actually something shared with me, to me, by a teacher, Chelsea T. Hicks. She's a wonderful writer out of Tulsa, and she and I were talking about a draft of my novel, and she mentioned that line because she had heard a native speaker. I think she was giving a speech, and she had said that. And I researched it, and there's lots of different versions of it, but the one for this book that resonated was this idea of how we treat the land as reflect our relationship with people and how we value people. And so, as you were saying, the two kind of big conflicts in this are around women and the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls crisis. This idea that women are within Indigenous communities for a variety of reasons, you know, their stories aren't believed. Local law enforcement doesn't show up to support them and their families in searching for them. Not to mention that kind of infrastructure isn't there to kind of support their safety. We have all of that pushing against those communities. And then there's a huge social and environmental justice piece, which in Northeastern Oklahoma, where I'm from and where this book is set, all of that is based on real life. I was very careful to truly do my best to only represent the truth in my fiction. I mean, the picture Oklahoma was called the most toxic town in America. It's a place where the mine companies came in and dug up everything under the earth and then abandoned them after taking out billions of dollars, none of which went to the tribes or community. And what the companies left in the aftermath is a completely environmentally devastated area. If any of your listeners have heard of Love Canal, we were, the what's called the Pitcher Superfund, Tar Creek Superfund site predates Love Canal. It was actually the first Superfund site in the country and it led to children having just astronomically high rates of lead poisoning, lots of other serious health problems. I mean, there's dialysis centers everywhere in northeastern Oklahoma. It's just it's a it left a real crisis for people. And because the community um, was so economically disadvantaged, people couldn't leave these homes that were built on top of toxic land with toxic water and breathing toxic air. So it was a true crisis. And I set the story in 2008 for a pretty specific reason. That's sort of a spoiler in the book. But everything that kind of happens around the land and these sort of events, these related to nature even, um, are true. And people can look up all of this information and learn as much as they want to learn about what really happened in this community. And particularly this land belonged to the Kwapa tribe as well. So that's just another example of the actually legally, the government came in, took the land from the tribe, put their money in trust, air quotes. And most of the tribe members never saw a dime of the money that was taken. And all of that was legal through the BIA, which my main character works for, uh, which creates another dynamic. But but yeah, I really wanted as much truth and fiction because as a reader, I love that.
3: Yeah, I had learned a lot uh, by reading this novel, *Blood Sisters*, and the mining that you refer to is lead and zinc mining. And I think maybe it was at the end of the book, or maybe I followed some links that you provide. This is the most toxic Superfund site, or one of the most in America. Is this right?
0: Yeah, when it was sort of first discovered and was being talked about, it's been called the most picture has been called this town, the most toxic town in America. That town has since the homes there were bought out, um, though much of the tribe was not paid back. But so it's, it's actually a ghost town now. But the people around it still suffer the health problems. I mean, growing up, I'm actually from one town over, Miami, which spelled like Miami for readers, but it's pronounced Miami. And the creek that ran next to my house was often orange from pollution. So it's not like it only affected picture, it affected all of the Northeastern Oklahoma and other corners of Kansas and Missouri that were in that disaster area. So it remains an extremely polluted place. And there's still ongoing research. There's an annual Tar Creek Conference there's many activists in the area, many of them indigenous, who are trying to continue to remediate the land and to some degree, you know, heal some of what's been done. But it's honestly it hasn't gone well. I mean, the government contracts have not panned out. You know, Oklahoma is a hard place to do anything environmental. It's a pretty conservative state. So it's just it's been really difficult. And it's just so sad because the relationship between the tribes and the land is so important. And I would say it should be important to all of us. But certainly for the tribes that are on the land, there is a true you know, kinship and, and trying to really have a relationship with the land. And what happened in Pitcher is an almost on-the-nose metaphor for what happens when you don't have that kind of love, appreciation, and care for the place in which you live. It kills you. It kills those you love and it destroys your homes,
3: and no one can be there anymore. So that relationship to the land is is a very different one than the one of settler colonialism. You know, just very briefly, and could you say, what is the key concept that animates the relationship of indigenous communities to the land?
0: Well, I, I think it's how you view the land, in a very simple level. If you view it as a thing to be taken... If you view it as a place where you want to put up fences and own it and exploit whatever resources you can for money, then I think that right there shows the disruption of that. It's not even a relationship, right? You're using it. There's no appreciation for what it is. I mean, if you kind of study some of the even, you know, I'm reading a lot about colonial and and pre-colonial New England right now, because the sequel to Blood Sisters is all set where I live now, which is Rhode Island. And so much of what colonists were surprised by were the ways in which Native people hunted, fished, took care of the land. You didn't just come into a place and shoot all the deer, right? You didn't come in and just strip all the bark off the trees. You knew how much you could take because you understood a place and and had been taught generation after generation how to care for something. And this idea of truly understanding the trees in our yard and the animals that feed us is revolutionary in our culture. You know, we don't have any responsibility to any of that. And so it's it's a paradigm shift. It is truly the way in which we view the place in which we live and the things that nourish our bodies and all of that is not a responsibility, but I do think if we do return to indigenous teachings and we allow indigenous leaders and our tribal communities to take more of a front and center role, I think some of that can return. That's my hope, it's my belief. It's why I'm a storyteller is I do think that we can return to some of that. I don't think I don't think it feels good to use the land in that way. I don't think it feels good to know that the place that you live, like you don't have a respect for it. Like, don't you want to know what plants and animals are indigenous to where you live and how best to let that the land be healthy and regenerate every season and to plant things that grow and can nurture you and your family or support farmers who have a, a sense of what grows best. Like, I think that's what feels good to us, but it's so hard to get there because it's almost the opposite of the system that have fences and land and to extract resources and have profit.
2: KPFT, People of Earth, 90.1 FM in Houston. We're Community Radio.
3: And we are talking with Vanessa Lilly about her murder mystery, Blood Sisters. Your character, Sid, as you mentioned before, works at the Bureau of Indian Affairs. She's a anthropologist. She's part of a new generation at the Bureau, at the BIA. First, talk just briefly about the Bureau's role in the past, just to orient us, and then what kinds of changes have been happening, or have they been happening?
0: The Bureau of Indian Affairs was actually sort of founded during under the Department of War, and it's an organization that technically manages all Federally recognized tribes, so there are many tribes that are not federally recognized, but uh, most of the main ones that probably people have heard of are federally recognized, which means that they have some lands, and those lands then are managed by the federal government. And so the BIA is now under the Department of Interior, and they have the responsibility to hopefully work well with tribes to support them. Now, for most of the BIA's history, that has not been what has happened. What happened in picture is just a perfect example. And this would have been, you know, in the 1920s and 30s. So a little while ago. But the, you know, BIA came in with laws and took away the land from the Quapaw tribe that rightfully had that land and said, we're going to take the money that is made from this um, mining." and we're gonna put it in trusts for you all. And none of that money was ever actually given to the tribe. So that is an example of why there is a very deep distrust in tribal communities of the BIA. Now, as you are saying, there is a new generation and I I believe this for a couple of reasons. Number one, my uncle served his whole professional career in the BIA um, in Oklahoma. And my brother currently <laughs> works in the BIA in Oklahoma. And I, and I know that they both have worked very hard on behalf of the tribes and believe in the, the work that they do. And, you know, I believe that there's many people who work in that organization that deeply believe in helping tribes. And in fact, my main character, she's an archaeologist. And so I spoke with an archaeologist for the BIA, um, just as like an informational interview. And she actually is the one who sort of, I hadn't put that title or decided on that job yet but once I spoke to her I saw that that would be kind of the perfect job for my character because the way that the woman in that I spoke with the archaeologist you know she described she almost sees her job as like an intermediary between kind of government resources government organization you know grants that kind of thing you know with the tribes themselves and She also gave an example of, you know, if a tribe that she's working with, you know, let's say somebody wants to put cable lines through a section of their land, which are these are things that happen, you know, but doing that would mean that there's a particular say plant or waterway that, you know, would then be impacted. And it's probably a plant that has been used within the tribes that say for thousands of years, or it's a waterway that's sacred, right? Right. So maybe she could come in and she would help maybe find an alternative route or help support, you know, maybe they have to find an alternative place. So it's almost like an an intermediary in some ways, but she has to have a real understanding and appreciation for tribal history and culture and to have the kind of relationship with them where they trust her to share what matters to them. Um, And that trust is not something that has existed among tribes um, and the government for Many good reasons, and so I just thought it was so interesting to think about, a, you know, creating a character who was, you know, indigenous. So my main character is Cherokee, but she is actually working out where I live now in Narragansett land, and the Narragansett tribe is one of the first tribes that, you know, greeted colonists off the boat. So they've been here, as they say, time in memoriam since way before there was any written history. Um, and so I just thought it would be really powerful to think about you know, a someone who in some ways has a foot in two different worlds. It's the world of supporting tribes, but then it's also the world of government and bureaucracy, which to some degree can be really important for tribes too, because that's a lot of resources and, you know, and access to their lands. And, you know, there's a bureaucracy that goes into tribal land as well. So I thought having the BIA kind of be a part of that was interesting for me personally, because my family ties, but also just it created a complexity in the character that I wanted to write.
2: KPFT 90.1 FM, KPFT Houston, People of Earth, It's Indigenous.
3: And Sid, now her job as an archaeologist, I always mix up anthropologist and archaeologist. As an archaeologist... Her position, I guess, in many ways, was it created by the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act of 1990? Or uh, tell us about that act and what it did.
0: Yeah. You know, I imagine there were archaeologists within BIA before. I don't imagine many of them were indigenous. But what has happened traditionally is that the graves of tribal communities, the the artifacts, you could call them, within tribal communities have been stolen generation after generation. I mean, the kind of original purpose of museums even if you get really into archaeology was like a cabinet of curiosities. It was this idea of, "Ooh, look at these weird things from different places." And, "Oh, look at this skull, and look at this arrowhead." And it was very othering and sometimes racist. I mean, "Oh, their skulls are smaller, they're less intelligent." I mean, that, you know, that's a part of the narrative there too. But so within archaeology, there had not been a kind of respect for the fact that they were essentially going and digging up people's ancestors and then stealing not only the bones, but often when a person is buried, they're buried with certain things for reasons that are important to the families and even tribes and traditions. And there's just no, there was no respect or appreciation for that. And so when NAGPRA was passed, they basically, at the time, you know, you were talking about hundreds of thousands of bones sitting in, well, people's homes, but university systems and museums. And I think, I actually was just sort of brainstorming about this the other day. Like, there are colonial grave sites that are just as old as some of these native burial sites. But you don't see people taking their shovels and going to a colonist graveyard and digging up ancestors that people have. Like, There's just such an othering of native graveyards and remains that made people think it was okay to sort of steal them and display them. And to this day, there are universities that still have native remains on shelves. Um, There was actually a big timeline thing with the law recently. So a couple of museums have had to sort of cover (laughs) what they have displayed because they have an onus to do DNA testing and figure out where these bones that they've stolen should go, whose families they should be, which tribes they belong to, so they can be returned. But a lot of universities haven't done that, because honestly, the law itself had given them a lot of allotments and passes for that, and they didn't have to. And within the, I would say, university archaeology communities, you know, there's this sort of debate about whether or not you have to return things like that. I think there's, a again, new generation of people who obviously don't see it that way, but You're fighting against a system that has existed really to other these groups. So as an archaeologist, you know, we probably think of like Indiana Jones, for example. But what that really is, is it's a person coming into a place and stealing things that don't belong to them. Like even if you have on a cool hat, like at the end of the day, that's not your ancestor, right? That's not your property. And it's how you look at something. And if you look at something like, oh, there's a place I can go and dig and take. Right. There's no relationship to it. There's no sense of like, oh, this belongs to a community. This belongs to a group of people that I have nothing to do with. And me just stealing it and displaying it. It's very disturbing. And no one no one would want their great-great great grandmother dug up either. And I don't think they'd want her on display. And I don't think they'd want people staring through the glass and saying, oh, can you believe that's what she thought a pot was? Oh, wow, that's what they look like. It just allows for judgments. So it's still an ongoing conversation, but it was interesting to create a character kind of in that world.
3: And that's all we have time for today on this broadcast.
0: And
2: that's all we have time for here on People of Earth,
3: here on KBFT.
2: 90.1 FM. Please look for us. We are Community Radio here in Houston. KPFT.org. I'm Jacqueline signing out for People of Earth. Please stay tuned for Arab Voices. Here's Jessica Sky and Surrender.
4: Tensei, Jesse here. I wrote this song the day I got out of detox in November of 2022. After my last suicide attempt and my last relapse, By the grace of God, I am still here. I am sober. I am healing. And I have surrendered. If you're struggling and you're watching this, know I love you. And please reach out. today